0: Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Bucher. Rick Buker.
1: Welcome to yet another coronavirus episode of Buker Friendless, a subsidiary of Buker and Friends, and part of the United WeCast Network. I'm Rick Bucher. You can see me on FS1, you can hear me on Fox Sports Radio. And you can read me soon somewhere. We will have that announcement, I promise you. Uh, You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Bucher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily, but not exclusively, involving the NBA, and that is here. And I introduce this as yet another coronavirus episode of the show, and uh, if you are like me, I'm looking forward to the day that I don't have to say that anymore. But we soldier on. And I wanted to get to something with the eve of the NBA season starting. uh, Starting to talk to GMs, getting ready to look at teams. And obviously the Lakers being a prohibitive favorite has led me to some conversations. Also, uh, listen to a podcast that I'm going to recommend and particularly got into the guest, Jamal Murray, and the insight that he provided. But I still, as with all things, there's always the question of where we are, yes, with LeBron James. And it's one of these things that I've talked about in previous podcasts, but it still amazes me. And as we watch him evolve and we see where the league is and trying to make its way back from obviously some disappointing Uh, ratings when it comes to TV, and there's some questions about the uh, popularity of the league at this point, and the fact that LeBron James, playing in the bubble, chasing another championship, chasing history, didn't really draw attention, didn't draw, draw a crowd. And why is that? And why do we remain so polarized on a guy like LeBron James. The the mystery around why some fans are so devoted to him and some can't stand him. And on the face of it, those who love him have more justification for doing so, considering his accomplishments. And yet, I completely understand those who think he's vastly overrated. And I believe at least part of this has to do with How he plays the game and the personality, not just of LeBron, but every player, the the leaders, the players who are in charge, the players who shape the way their teams play and the ones that we have eyeballs on the most in the course of a game, their personalities and the way they play the game, I believe, has a huge effect on what we think of them beyond the statistics. Beyond the highlights. Beyond, quite honestly, the accomplishments. And this dovetails with something that I will get into. Jamal Murray giving his five favorite players to watch. And there was at least one striking omission from that list. And we'll get to that. But if you're really in tune with the game, you can tell why someone plays and what they're looking to prove when they're on the court. And it's not always as simple as they want to prove they're the best player or even they can lead their team to victory. That may be part of the motivation or equation, but it's clear there's something else going on. And again, we're talking about the very top players. Magic Johnson, for instance, love to show... Just how creative he could be. How he could completely fool opponents. He, he got a lot of things done. He didn't have to do it the way that he did it. But he had that extra panache. He had that, not only is he going to deliver the ball, not only was he unselfish, not only did he he have great floor vision, but he his trickeration, <laughs> as a friend of mine that I grew up playing with liked to say, was... Unparalleled. It's the same thing that motivates some magicians or entertainers, I believe. It's the thrill of doing something that no one saw coming. I, look, I, I like to do that in the stories I write. I like providing a twist or a sudden revelation that the reader didn't see coming. Now and then I have the chance to watch someone as they read one of my stories. And if they suddenly smile... Or laugh or get choked up, I know exactly where they are in the story and there's nothing that is more gratifying than to think that I elicited that reaction. And I got the impression that magic got that same joy by threading a pass through an opening no one but him saw. Michael Jordan, for all his relentless aggression Always had his priorities straight. As did Magic. He loved to be an entertainer. But it was always in the context of he was trying to win. If he had to post up, if he had to make the boring play, he would. But he was going to make the play that was going to win. If he had to play center, uh, the baby jump hook, uh, he did whatever was necessary to win. He just did it in his own style. There was something on top of it. But you never question, was he going to be flashy for the sake of being flashy? Maybe at the beginning. Again, never forget that he played with Norm Nixon when he first came into the league and people kill Westbrook for all the turnovers, Russell Westbrook for all the turnovers he had. Michael uh, Magic Johnson led the league in turnovers when he first came in. He didn't know how to control that flashiness, funnel it. And manage it in order to not let it get in the way of being, of, of being successful, of winning. Michael Jordan, same thing in terms of scoring, uh, dominating. How do I do it in the context of giving myself the best chance to win? But I never got the question that it was more about, for Michael, scoring than winning. Or Magic being a magician than winning. They had to figure out how to do it. Yes, with Michael, he believed he was the best player on the floor. Yes, he wanted to convince everyone and anyone every single night that he was the best player on the floor. But I never got the sense that he let proving that point supersede trying to win. He simply thought him having the ball, and in most cases taking the shot, gave his team the best chance to win and most cases, in just about every case, he was right. That's where, as much as I respect and admire Kobe Bryant, his ambition was not quite as pure. He wanted to prove he could win like Michael won. And again, there was an evolution. It was clear that he wanted to prove that he could win, he could be like Michael. And then as he got older and had some losses, it became more about how do I harness the things around me? How do I win with what I've got as opposed to win the way I want to win? LeBron, same thing. Uh, Distinction there, but we'll get to that. But with, with Kobe, the winning was shaded with a particular way of winning for a long time. And it's why I understand that there are some fans out there who don't like the way he played the game, that think he was selfish. Winning drove him first and foremost, but there was a hint of selfishness in that he wanted to win a certain way and in a certain style. And I don't know that that ever went away completely. Now, the disparate feelings about LeBron, completely understandable too, even more so. There is so much going on with him beyond winning. Yes, of course. His goal is to win. Goal was to distribute the ball. Uh, But he's complicated. And why did he want to win? To prove what? That he was the best to ever play? He might be saying that now. And he might be trying to make that case genuinely. Now, because it's within reach, at least from a statistical standpoint, and what else does he have to do? But that hasn't always been his motivation. He came into the league saying he wanted to be the first billionaire athlete. His And the way he played in, in Cleveland, and the way he went about developing his game and his craft, didn't say, didn't, didn't demonstrate that he wanted to be the best player wasn't even that he wanted to be Michael. Again, he said a lot of things along the way that didn't match up with what he did.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: I've always sensed that the reason he wanted to win, the reason that he played, the reason that he played the way that he did and does is that he was looking for approval and acceptance and if you know how he grew up and in, in the circumstances that it it's completely understandable that that would be what he would seek that and extreme wealth neither of which he had growing up and which i could imagine would fill a monstrous psychological void for him and i think it's why he appeals to a completely different type of fan than Kobe or Michael. They, for the most part, came from far more stable backgrounds, family backgrounds. They weren't looking for that psychological approval, acceptance, somebody putting their arms around them. And for LeBron, it's less about his game and more about his entire demeanor. I'm always struck by how his eyes are always searching for the cameras how he complains how he complains to officials and even how he daps up his teammates it's so different than the way kobe and michael handled those situations kobe and michael talked to refs with a natural superiority as if to say let me explain to you how and why you got this wrong where LeBron reacts as if to say, I can't believe you did this to me. I can't believe you're treating me this way. It's, quite frankly, it's the attitude of a victim. And I imagine there are a lot of fans out there who can relate to that sense of being unfairly judged or treated and identify with him based on that. Now, before I continue, I do want to mention my primary sponsor, Mizzen and Main, uh, they have transformed menswear by taking the best attributes of performance fabrics, such as sweat wicking and being machine washable, and combined them with the quintessential pieces of a guy's wardrobe. Most importantly, the dress shirt. But they've got slacks, got a terrific uh, blue blazer. Uh, They're making joggers now. They've got pullovers, sweaters. You have to check them out. MizzenandMain.com. Uh, What I love about them, other than, obviously, their dress shirts that are machine washable, means no more weekly trips to the dry cleaner for me. Uh, They're high quality enough. I wear them on TV and in public appearances almost exclusively, but I really love the fit. Uh, They have that snug feel that is the current fashion, but they're stretchy enough that I never feel confined or like I can't move my arms or neck. MizzeninMaine.com. Please check them out. Let them know that I sent you. And uh, if you need any more references, uh, it's what I was wearing in the uh, Wall Street Journal piece recently done on me and my home studio. So there you go. All right. Um, All this talk about the personality of players and how it affects whether we like watching them or how we feel about them or whether we admire their game uh, was inspired by hearing... Uh, Denver Nuggets guard, Jamal Murray, on the Knuckleheads podcast with Darius Miles and Quentin Richardson. Highly recommend it. And they got a lot out of Jamal, including, and this is what really sparked this conversation, is his five players, his five favorite players to watch. Now, let's make, make it clear. Five favorite players to watch, not... Top five players all time. Not greatest, whatever. But five favorite players to watch. And they were. Michael Jordan. Vince Carter. Brandon Roy. Steph Curry. And he had to search a little bit, but then he landed on Tracy McGrady. Now, obviously, the great uh, omission there is no LeBron James. And... No Kobe Bryant. Even though both Michael and Kobe were his dad's favorite players, and he said he watched a lot of the film growing up. And this gets to the heart of my point here, which is there was something pure about Michael, and something pure about all of these guys, regardless of their level of success. I believe there's something a little bit deeper too when it comes to these five and as I relate them to Jamal and his game which is that he's had to figure out how to be effective with his skill set and his size. He's a big guard so he's ended up playing point guard probably more of a shooting guard and has had to dovetail those. LeBron has such physical dominance that he's been able to shortcut some things, and there's an elegance about the five players that he picked in the way that they play the game that is far different from LeBron. I think there's there's a brute force element to LeBron, and I actually had this conversation with one of the uh, well with a top executive. Uh, with one of the broadcast partners for the NBA. And that's as far as I'll go, as far as identifying who they are. But we were talking about the downward trend of the ratings and how bad they were for the bubble, and the question about LeBron's popularity. And he agreed that for all of LeBron's success and for all of the... Uh, amazing physical things he can do, and some of the, the the plays that he will make. I mean, a lot of it is really overplayed. If you if you watch a just watch a tape of, forget Magic Johnson. He he, he is not in Magic Johnson's category when it comes to to passing. It, Magic is in a category all his own. Watch Rod Strickland. There's there's a number of guards whose cleverness when it comes to passing supersedes LeBron's. LeBron is a great passer, no, no doubt. Has great vision and loves giving up the ball. But as far as his cleverness and creativity, I don't, I just can't put it in the upper echelon. Does he has he collected a lot of assists? No question. But there's an artistry there. And that's why I understand. Jamal's list and why it wouldn't include LeBron. And I guess in some ways why it wouldn't include Kobe. Because yes, there was artistry there, but it was his... Uh, I don't even know what to, what word to put on it. His zeal, his competitive drive, his relentlessness, the fury with which he played. Again, something that I'm sure a lot of fans uh, appreciate and found attractive. Uh, me included. like <laughs> um, in my uh, little athletic career, uh, I played with that same I had to play with that same fury. Uh, it was the only only chance that I that I got. Somebody rep- re- compared me once as a basketball player to John Barry. Anybody who saw John Barry play? He was he was kind of nasty. He was in your face. He kind of glared. He always had this glare on his face. Tough. That was, that was me. Or at least that's what I apparently reminded people of. One of the other things they got out of Jamal were his five favorite Canadian players. He was not allowed to include himself. And the five were Steve Nash, Tristan Thompson, Anthony Bennett, R.J. Barrett, And Andrew Wiggins. Now, go back and listen to the podcast. You can tell he threw Wiggins in at the end. It was almost reluctantly. He needed to give five, and Wiggins was the fifth, was the last add-on. Bennett was third, and Jamal knew that he had to immediately defend or explain that pick, which he did, and that was simply played with Bennett on the Canadian national team and had a totally different experience with him. I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it. Where you get picked, which team picks you, what kind of team they have, who's around you, all of that has a huge impact on the success or failure of a player who makes it to the NBA. And the number one pick, being the number one pick, is a burden because you are expected, regardless of where you go, position you play, you were expected to be the best player in that draft. No question. And if you're not, then you are a failure. You're a bust. And you think about guys who are good enough to be the number one pick, probably never been looked at, or it's been a long, long time since they've been viewed as a failure. Some guys simply aren't prepared to deal with that, especially you rise to the very top of your profession. You reach your goal and then you're told no you suck that's something to combat when you're a teenager or in your early 20s some are ready to some are capable many are not so i say that to not defend anthony bennett or the cleveland cavaliers but gives you a little insight into you know maybe anthony bennett wasn't that bad if if he had been picked eighth or ninth by another team another circumstance uh, with a better point guard that could have highlighted him might have been a completely different story the other thing i got from the conversation and this is what i was really interested in hoping to find out is insight into his relationship with nikola jokic because again for anybody who observes the game and personalities and the way guys play the game, you can tell when guys like playing with each other or have a connection or just the order of leadership is understood and where guys are wrestling with each other, where it's not understood. And I got the sense that that was the case between Murray and Jokic, at least pre-bubble. It was. And hearing Jamal talk about how he came up helped me understand what the problem was and why it ultimately was resolved and why I don't believe it's going to be an issue moving forward. It's not that he had never played with a talented big man before. He played with Thonmaker in high school, played with Anthony Bennett, on the national team I played with a Scalabissier at uh, Kentucky and but those were those were different and Jamal talking about how he came up in spite of being from Canada and not highly touted at least to the level of somebody who ends up being a lottery pick or a, the way he would have been if he had grown up in the states it's that he always there was two things that motivated him one That he wanted to prove that he was as good or better than guys who were far more hyped. And two, he was always used to running the show. So, with those other bigs, that wasn't an issue. They were going to play off of him, he was going to be the director. You get with a big like Jokic, and you're suddenly put with a big man who is a playmaker who expects to have the ball in his hands. Not in terms of wants to take all the shots and make all the plays, but simply is used to being the orchestrator. And I can see where Jamal would struggle in adapting to a big who played that way. One of the questions I also can't wait to ask Jamal, and I wish, I actually, they asked plenty of great questions on the podcast. Again, recommend listening to it. Is whether the tempo that he plays at versus what Jokic plays at whether that's a factor in their learning curve in getting to play with each other cuz Murray likes to play at a f- much faster pace and Jokic is far more methodical and i could see where that would be a rub not in terms of uh, not getting along but simply how do i just how do i how do i play my most effective game a beat or two slower, because ultimately, that's the adjustment that Jamal has had to make. Jokic can't play fast. He can't. Jamal has had to learn how to pick his spots and certainly has figured out how to play fast when the opportunity presents itself and play off of Jokic and his more methodical approach when that's necessary. Speaking of top fives, and I want to wrap on this. Again, returning to the subject of, who else? LeBron James. But with the season just around the corner, I was having a text conversation with an Eastern Conference GM about the Lakers, and if I should or shouldn't look at them as the prohibitive favorite to repeat as champions. Now, on the one hand, I love all of the moves that they've made. There's no doubt that they are better. On paper, they are better. Marcus Gasol, Dennis Schroeder, Wes Matthews, they have improved across the board, and these are all guys that I believe can contribute to a winning situation. There's not one guy that I question compared to, say, some of the pieces that the Clippers have brought in. Probably most specifically, Nick Batum. I question that. But the bigger question is chemistry. That's why I question the Clippers. It's why I question or I raise the question with the GM about the Lakers because the Lakers had terrific chemistry last year in spite of what expectations were. I mean, you bring in... Rajan Rondo and Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee and a lot of disparate parts. And LeBron made it work. Rajan made it work. Dwight made it work. Now, so now you're bringing in a whole different bundle with Gasol, Schroeder, and Matthews. How is that going to work? And the GM basically said, look, LeBron will bring them, bring them together. And that led us to talking about who the true team leaders in the league are. And the GM texted, you can count them on one hand. They're just, and he said about LeBron, you may not like the way he does it, but you can't argue with the fact that he has this talent, this tremendous talent for getting guys to play together, to subsume their personalities and making it fit. That is, I believe, maybe one, maybe his greatest talent is to bring players together and to get the most out of everybody. But how many guys in the league, how many teams actually have that kind of leader? And I threw out a list because I agree with him. I think we, we call a lot of guys team leaders that are simply the best player on the team. But there's so much more that goes into it than that. I can't really blame any fans who don't see it or don't recognize what is and isn't leadership because some of so much of it occurs in practice or leaving practice or in conversations or before the cameras turn on exchanges. You see somebody talking to the coach. You hear about guys' work habits and decisions that they make. There's just a lot that goes into it. And that's where the true leadership comes through. Not just the guy who tells players where to go on the floor or makes a play and scores a winning basket. There's way, way more that goes into being a true leader. And so I put out a list. I LeBron, Chris Paul, Damian Lillard, uh Steph Curry slash Draymond Green, because again, anybody who knows the Warriors, by default, you would say Steph is the leader. But Draymond provides an emotional leadership that Steph that's just not in Steph's personality. And yet is indispensable to the Warriors. They are a great yin and yang. Uh, And the fact that Steph, ultimately, as the better player, gives Draymond that room, if you want to say he's the leader, that's fine. And certainly has made room for Kevin Durant, Klay Thompson. I mean, that's, again, that's kind of the leadership aspect that uh, LeBron shares with Steph and his ability to let other shine. And he's really doing that now uh, well with Anthony Davis, obviously. So, and Jimmy Butler, I would not have put him on that list prior to this year. Because, and I do believe for a reason, I believe he's learned how to lead in, in a better way. He wanted, he's always wanted to be that leader. He's always tried to be that leader. But wanting to, trying to. Uh, having the talent to be doesn't necessarily make you a leader you gotta figure out how you reach the guys around you how's the most effective way to get them to play their best and it's not one size fits all and it's not one approach it's not look it's a it's a challenge and uh, a gift and i would say that jimmy has learned a few things and certainly was the driving force with that Miami team. So, but after that, that was it. I I threw out Kyle Lowry slash Fred Van Vliet and Kyle's one of those guys who's grown into it, but it may be the particular circumstance that has worked for him. Uh, So if you want to throw them in as a sixth, you can. After that, guys are either not talented enough to be that true leader or they really aren't the leader. They say they're the leader. The media says they're the leader. They're called the leader of the team. But in terms of truly taking a team and making it better than the sum of its parts through their leadership, there are very few guys in the league that understand or are capable of doing that. Now, again, huge omission here. Because I asked, what about Kawhi Leonard? And the GM said, no way. Which should give Clippers fans pause. It should make you think about why they were such a disappointment last year. And honestly, the Clippers disappointment last year is one of the reasons why I didn't want to... Immediately jump on the Lakers bandwagon and make them the prohibitive favorite, simply because they're they have seem to have everything that's that's needed. They've got championship experience. Uh, they can they've got a bench, they've got star power, they've got scoring, they can defend. I Man, I all the Clippers had all those things. What they didn't have was experience being the favorite or the front runner. And as I look at LeBron and the Lakers, they don't really have that experience either. Think about it. Think about all the teams that LeBron James has been on. Other than his second year in Miami, can you name a team that he was on that was the prohibitive favorite from the beginning of the year that ended up winning the championship? I can't think of one. Now, do I think he's evolved enough that carrying that pressure is is within his wheelhouse? Yeah, I, I would think that it is. But it is something that I'm looking forward to seeing and seeing how he handles. Because it's one thing that he's never had to be all year long. And I believe that in many ways, That's what contributed to the disappointment of the Clippers, along with that question of leadership. Can you gather guys? Can you motivate them? Can you bring them together? Kawhi Leonard, honestly, when I look at both San Antonio and Toronto and how they won, he supplied something indispensable. But was he the leader? No. Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet were leaders. And, and look, LeBron in Cleveland wasn't, you ask the guys that were there. Back when he first got there, Eric Snow was more of a leader than LeBron James. James Jones in the locker room was more of a leader than LeBron James. It's, it's fact. I mean, I'm not just saying this to try to uh, downgrade LeBron because obviously I'm I'm upgrading him now. He's without question a leader, but wasn't always, grew into that. So can Kawhi grow into that? Can Kawhi recognize that he's going to have to approach things a different way if he's going to get this done? Is Is he going to look around and say, hey, you know what? Patrick Beverly's not good enough to be the leader. Paul George doesn't have the personality to be the leader. I need to step in to that role and be the leader here and what ultimately that's going to take. And we'll find out because leaders don't find out on their own what it takes to lead. It requires talking to other leaders, other people who have done it and find out how they did it. And I'll be interested to find out if Kawhi Leonard takes any counsel from other players who have led teams. It's there. Guys will talk. Guys will share. Especially if they're a little past their prime. The question is, will Kawhi seek them out? And we shall see. All right. That does it for this episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker & Friends, part of the United Wecast Network. Please do me a favor. Rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. All you got to do is hit whatever number of stars you want to give us. If you leave a comment, that would be great. Mizzen and Main and our other sponsors appreciate that. I appreciate it because it demonstrates to our sponsors that you are engaged and that you care. In the next podcast, we will be into training camp and we will be learning things about where various teams are and there has been a ton of change so that will be the subject of the next podcast in the meantime as always thanks for listening